Well, good morning, Lakeland. Happy Independence Day weekend. For all you guys watching online from your lake house, no fear, I'm super jealous. You may be seated. Uh, well, as I said, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Alex Smith. I'm the worship technology director here at Lakeland. I've been on staff for about the last six months. And on behalf of my wife, Jennifer, and our three kids, Alistair, Annalise, and Omri, we just want to let you know that you have made us feel so at home um, and welcome here, and I wanted to thank you for your hospitality. Now, if you're anything like me this morning, you might be sitting here this holiday weekend wondering to yourself how bad have things got that the sound guy is preaching this morning. <laughs> is everybody on vacation? Well, as Dan mentioned a few weeks ago, um, I'm actually finishing up my seminary degree at Fuller Theological Seminary, and I've had the pleasure of serving on teaching teams several times, different places throughout the years. So I was very excited when Dan invited me to come and share with you guys as we continue in our series, Surrender Together Love. Now, if you're new, like me, you may not know what Surrender Together Love is. Surrender Together Love is part of Lakeland's discipleship plan. It's designed to help us move closer to God, to love him, and to love our neighbors well. Um, Surrender Together Love is actually a collection of 17 spiritual habits um, or benchmarks that Christians have practiced for the better part of the last two millennia. And so far in our series, we've talked about prayer and reconciliation and hospitality. And this week, we're going to talk about the spiritual habit of suffering. That's right, suffering. Thanks, Dan, for assigning me that one. You see, here's the thing. All of us want to know, if there's an all-good, all-powerful, all-loving God, good God up there somewhere, why does he allow suffering in this world? So before we begin, let me just address the elephant in the room. Why does God allow suffering? Are you ready for it? You might want to take out your phone, take some notes. Here's a pencil. Here's the answer. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. And as profound as that is, here's the deal. It really doesn't matter what pastor, philosopher, theologian, expert you ask. The only intellectually genuine, honest answer about suffering is that we don't really understand it. But here's the deal. This is where the message of Christianity does its best work. This is what Christians the world over have placed their hope in. That God sees the suffering and chaos of this world and he cares deeply. God is not content to sit idly by and to allow sickness and sin and death, hatred, poverty, oppression, famine, war to continue on and on unchecked. That's kind of the whole point of the gospel. God is not just sitting up there somewhere as some kind of indifferent supervisor, watching his creation suffering in chaos and brokenness. No, God himself has entered into the human story to bring about his kingdom reign through his Messiah to fix what was broken, to conquer sin and death once and for all, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, and to bring about new resurrection life, new creation life. And God accomplishes this victory, not with powerful empires and conquering armies, but by one single act of self-sacrificial love. It is through the cross of Christ, the ultimate symbol of suffering, that God establishes his kingdom reign here on earth as it is in heaven. And it is through the resurrection of Christ that we too have hope of resurrection life. And we look forward with hope and longing to the day when Christ shall return to put an end to death and suffering once and for all as he brings about the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. And yet in the meantime, suffering is still part of our everyday lives. Our loved ones get sick. Children still get abused. Relationships still get broken. Oppression, violence, suffering, the whole lot. 
and yet still we have hope. So here's the big idea this morning. Just as God demonstrated through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, God can still use the suffering and chaos of this world as the raw materials to bring about new creation in Christ. Or to put it in simpler terms, God can take the broken things of this world and use it to build something new and beautiful. And I think we intuitively get this. Even if you don't identify as a Christian this morning, I think most of us would agree that the process of wrestling through hard times and growing through seasons of suffering makes us who we are. It can mature us, strengthen us, and even give us wisdom. It doesn't make the suffering any easier. It doesn't excuse the suffering. And I certainly don't suggest that we go around looking for it, but here's the thing. God can use the suffering on our lives to accomplish things we never would have expected. And this is why we view suffering as a spiritual habit. You see, rarely does our faith faith grow when times are easy, when we have everything we need. No, it is in times of deep and profound suffering when our eyes turn towards the cross, when we look to Christ and our faith is deepened. And it is in those moments that God does his best work when he begins to take the brokenness of our lives and begins to build something new. And here's the secret. In those moments we begin to get a tiny glimpse of the new creation. So this morning, we're going to look at an example of this in John's gospel. If you have a Bible with you, Bible app, you can get to it, but otherwise you can follow along with our screens. We're going to begin in John chapter 9, verse 1. But first, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to come together, to study your word, to wrestle with one another, to be with one another in our suffering. We love you so much. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable to you. Amen. John chapter 9. So one day, as Jesus is walking along with his disciples, Jesus sees a poor beggar on the side of the road who had been born blind. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. Now, for many of you this morning, if you've been around church for a long time, You've probably already familiar with this passage. In fact, you may have already heard several sermons preached about it. But if you're new to church or you're new to John's gospel in general, I want to suggest to us this morning that you actually may have an advantage on the rest of us this morning. You see, often we can become so familiar with a particular passage that it begins to lose some of its strangeness and wonder. And this passage is actually really weird. Why did Jesus' disciples assume that this man's suffering was the result of somebody's sin? What is Jesus referring to when he rattles on and about the works of God? What does Jesus mean when he claims to be the light of the world? And what on earth is going on with this strange, bizarre ritual using spit and mud? And lastly, what, if anything, does this story have to do with us today? So as we begin to answer these questions, I want to remind us that God can use the suffering and chaos of this world as the raw materials to bring about new creation in Christ. Just as in the beginning, he creates light out of darkness. So to begin, I think it's important to point out some of the background assumptions of Jesus' day. In the ancient world, there was a common belief that the righteous would prosper and the wicked would suffer. 
And this seems a straightforward enough assumption. I mean, if all worldly blessings were blessings from God or the gods, then surely a prosperous person is an indication of divine favor. Consider Abraham, to whom God said, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. Or consider Moses from the end of the, end of the Torah, the end of Deuteronomy. Moses explains to the Israelites that if they obey God and keep his commandments, they would be blessed. But if they disobey God and worshiped other gods, they would suffer, ultimately ending in death or exile. So from this perspective, Jesus' disciples' question seems straightforward enough. If someone was struck by blindness, surely it was the result of divine displeasure. Yet in this case, there was a problem. You see, this man had been born congenitally blind. He was blind from birth. So how could he have sinned before he was born? Perhaps his disciples reasoned that his parents had done something so terrible, so awful, that their son was suffering as a consequence. Now, as a quick aside, I want to address something very briefly. As modern readers reading ancient stories, often stories like this one can come across as very ableist. We know that blindness doesn't necessarily mean someone is suffering. People without sight are not lesser humans that we should pity them. Indeed, blind people live happy, fulfilling lives. However, in this ancient context, in a subsistence culture, people who were blind had very few options. Indeed, if you look down to verse 8, you will see that this man was a beggar. In this ancient context, blindness assumes a life of suffering. Thus, Jesus' disciples ask why this, why, what this man had done wrong. But here, Jesus steps in and unequivocally answers, hey guys, things don't always work like that. Instead, God is up to something here. Jesus insists that the problem of suffering isn't as straightforward as righteousness equaling blessing and sinfulness equaling suffering. Indeed, the Bible itself is full of conversations and even arguments in this regard. The entire book of Job is an argument about this very topic. Job was a righteous man who suffered for reasons completely unknown to him. And the writer of Ecclesiastes, as well as many of the Psalms, they bemoan the fact that often the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer. And the prophet Ezekiel likewise argues that God does not punish children for the sins of their parents. But if this man is not suffering as a consequence of sin, why then is he suffering? Here Jesus explains, He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Sure, Jesus, that makes sense. What is he talking about here? What are the works of him who sent me? Well, to answer that, it's a little unfair because we just jumped right in the middle of John. So I'm going to summarize very briefly what Jesus has already said about the works of God in John's gospel. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, The works that the Father has given me to complete, the very works that I am doing, testify on my behalf that the Father has sent me. Notice here the connection between works and sending. Likewise, in John chapter 6, Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that this man's blindness has something to do with Jesus' mission to reveal that he is the one sent by God so that you might believe in him. Then Jesus goes on to say, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Here we see Jesus repeating this bold, audacious claim that he had just made in the previous chapter, I am the light of the world. In fact, this theme of Jesus being light is a consistent theme throughout John's gospel. This is actually how John, 
the writer of this story, this is how he introduces us to Jesus in the beginning of his entire gospel story. Don't miss what he does here. It's absolutely brilliant. John is tying the beginning of his Jesus story to the beginning of the entire creation story. Here's how John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Here we see John calling his readers to remember the beginning of the entire biblical story, way back in Genesis, the beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures. John is tying his gospel to the beginning of the entire biblical story. And this is how Genesis begins. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind or spirit from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. You see, when John calls Jesus light, he's tapping into cosmic themes of creation, of order out of chaos. This is the one who has been sent by God. His work is to bring light out of darkness, and he creates sight for the one who is born blind. When Jesus is around, it's like daylight. But when he's absent, life can seem as dark as night. Next, we come to verses 6 and 7. When Jesus had said this, he spat on the ground made some mud, and with the saliva, spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. What on earth is going on here, people? This part's super weird. It's kind of gross. I mean, spit in mud? I don't want anybody spitting and rubbing mud in my eyes. You see, usually in the Gospels, when Jesus heals people, he doesn't need any props or ingredients or materials. Sometimes Jesus doesn't even have to be around for somebody to get healed. Somebody comes to him and it's like, my so-and-so is sick. And he's like, yeah, go home. They're fine. They're good. It just sort of happens. But that's not what happens in this story. Something is different in this story. Now, interestingly, it was common in Jesus' day and still is in several parts of the world to use saliva as a medicinal aid in traditional or indigenous medicine. People groups throughout the ancient Greco-Roman world would often use saliva and clay for their curative properties. As a result, it has often been the consensus of many modern scholars that Jesus' use of these materials here is simply an example of that type of medicinal remedy. But I want to suggest to us this morning there might be something much more interesting going on here. You see, beginning in the, with the early church fathers in the second century, Irenaeus and others, they observe parallels here between Jesus' making mud to heal and God's creative act of fashioning humanity from clay. You see, in Genesis, there's this really cool wordplay that God fashioned humanity, Adam, from the dirt, the ground, Adama. In the same way, Jesus is, is making mud and healing. It's a creative act. From this perspective, Jesus didn't heal the man, since the man could never see in the first place. Does that make sense? It's hard to heal something that was never there. Instead, what Jesus is doing is creating sight where there is none before as a new act of creation. Furthermore, there was a common cultural and literary connection between saliva and clay and creation stories, creation myths in the ancient Near Eastern world. 
ancient Babylonian literature, as well as Egyptian literature, as well as writings from the Jewish Qumran community, the people that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, all of them shared stories about how the cosmos was created through the use of spit and clay. In other words, it was a common cultural understanding that spit and clay were somehow parts of the divine creative process, and likely this illusion would not have been lost on John's original audience. And this theme of creation makes perfect sense with John's insistence that he's the light of the world, that he was present and active in the creation of all things. It seems quite likely, therefore, that Jesus is here participating in a divine act of creation as he accomplishes the works of God. And there's one more interesting detail in here I don't want us to miss. Notice that Jesus spread the mud on the man's eyes and sent him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, which John makes a special point to tell us it means sent. Here this word spread in the NRSV, which I read this morning, is translated other ways in different translations. The English Standard Version renders it anointed. You see, this word spread or anointed comes from the Greek root kreo, which is related to a word you may know, Christos, as in Jesus Christos, or Christ. Right? Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's a title that means anointed one or Messiah. In other words, this is really cool. Jesus, the anointed one who is sent by God, is now anointing and sending this man so that the works of God might be revealed in him so that you may believe in him who he sent. Can you imagine? The man woke up in the morning, a poor Middle Eastern beggar, and he went home being the sent one from God's Messiah to accomplish the works of God so that you might believe in him who he sent. That's really powerful. But what does this story have to do with us today? First, I'd like for us to consider the relationship between sin and suffering. I really like here how New Testament historian and author N.T. Wright puts it. He says this, we have to stop thinking of the world as a kind of moral slot machine where people put in a coin, a good act, say, or an evil one, and get out a particular result, a reward or a punishment. Of course, actions always have consequences. Good things often happen as the result of good actions. Kindness produces gratitude. And bad things often happen as a result of bad actions. Drunkenness can cause car accidents. But this isn't inevitable. Kindness is sometimes scorned, and some drunkards always seem to get away with it. Look, our decisions have consequences, yet sometimes the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. God does discipline those he loves, and we do need to repent individually and corporately for our sins, but perhaps sometimes we suffer so that the works of God might be revealed in us. Can you remember back to the beginning of COVID-19? Who sinned, this man or his parents? Were we suffering because it was God's judgment? Maybe. Or perhaps God was planning to use our suffering for his glory in some way we don't understand. And what about war-torn Ukraine? What about folks living right here who have lost loved ones? What about people who struggle with mental illness or homelessness? If we're suffering, does God not love us anymore? Is he angry with us beyond measure? Jesus says no. Remember, we have a Savior who understands suffering. Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And Jesus says this, you will have suffering in this world, but take courage. I have overcome the world. But what about the other side of the coin? 
Does blessing and um, prosperity equal God's favor? Remember that Jesus warns us it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it is to try to cram a camel through the eye of a needle. Assuming that our comfort is a sure sign of God's favor is both dangerous and foolhardy. Secondly, I'd like to address the tricky issue of making room for the works of God in our suffering. For this blind man in his context, blindness likely meant that he couldn't hold down a job, which meant he probably couldn't raise a family. He likely would not have been allowed into the temple in Jerusalem as a blind person. He was probably very marginalized in his society. And for what? Was all this just so Jesus could make some object lesson for his disciples? Was it worth it? I don't know, but here's the thing. This man's story was part of something so much bigger than himself, and he had no idea. Just imagine what would he think if he could see us sitting here right now, thousands of years later, halfway around the world, reading his story, the story of some poor Middle Eastern beggar. His story was part of God's plan to rescue the entire world. Little did he know that his story was part of a cosmic story that his suffering would somehow contribute to ushering in God's kingdom reign into this world. This man's story was part of the story of new creation. And here's the thing. We don't really see the world from God's perspective. Does this mean our suffering has a purpose? Frankly, I don't know. But what I am confident in is that God can use our suffering to accomplish his works in ways that would blow our minds. Let me be clear. Ultimately, suffering is not just a normal part of life that we need to learn to live with. Let me say that again. Ultimately, suffering is not just a normal part of life that we need to learn to live with. No. Death, sickness, suffering in this world is an enemy that needs to be defeated. It is an enemy that needs defeating. And ultimately, we believe that Jesus, through the death and resurrection, has defeated those evils once and for all. And yet, we still deal with suffering in our daily lives as we cry out to God, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Return to finish what you began on the cross. And in the meantime, we look to the cross of Christ knowing that we will endure suffering in this life and yet we pray, Lord, use our suffering for your purposes even if we don't understand it. So this morning, I want to ask you a question. What does this look like in your life? For me in my life, well, I've suffered relatively little compared to most. I think back to last summer. Um, at, well, I was on staff at the church that I'd been on for many years. We finally start to feel like we were coming out of that COVID funk. Maybe you can relate to that. Unfortunately, though, the finances continued to be poor, and eventually they had to let me go, lay me off as well as several of my friends. And man, I'll tell you what, that hurt. It was my church home. It was the place where my wife and I wanted to raise our family. It was our community. It's where all of our friends were. It's where all of our children's friends were. It felt like it was a place where God wanted me and was using me. And now all of a sudden it was gone. And I didn't even know how I was going to provide for my family. Maybe some of you have been there. But here's the thing as I look back over the past year. Having to depend on God for my finances has made me more grateful for what I do have. And in turn, it has made me more generous. Learning that the entire ministry of the church doesn't depend on me and my talents and abilities, in fact, I'm actually replaceable, has forced me to grow in humility and my dependence on God. And losing close friendships has helped me 
to appreciate the ones I have now. It doesn't make suffering any better or easier. I wouldn't choose to go through it again if I had to do it over. But I can see now how God has matured me in the process. And now here I am with you. So here's what I think I've learned over the, and throughout the process. It wasn't for me, it wasn't so much the suffering itself that matured me, although there's probably a place for that. For me, actually, it was the being with Jesus in the process that changed me. It was the experiencing of God's love in the process that changes me. Paul, in his letter to the Roman church, says this, We also boast in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to you. Here at Lakeland, as strange as it sounds to say, we value the habit of suffering, because we know that when we suffer, Jesus is right there with us in the middle of it, working to make something beautiful out of our brokenness. So wherever you're at this morning, whether you've already been through a lot, whether you're in the midst of suffering right now, or whether you see that dark storm cloud looming on the horizon, know that Jesus is right there with you in the midst of the storm. And remember that our stories are part of God's story. We, like the blind man, are part of a cosmic story. It's the story of how God has stepped into this world to fix what is broken. And we must begin to realize that God can use the suffering and chaos of this world as the raw materials to bring about new creation in Christ. This is a cosmic story. Just as in the beginning, God created light out of darkness, so too now God has sent his Messiah into this world to transform everything. Back then, for Jesus' disciples, a day was coming when through the cross all hope would seem lost and the world would be cast into darkness and night. But out of that darkness, God was establishing a whole new world filled with light and life and healing. And we today live on this side of the resurrection. We today live on this side of the Easter story. We who are walking in darkness have seen a great light, and as a result of the resurrection, we have been invited in to participate in new creation life through Jesus. We were who, who were blind have been given eyes to see, and as the light of Christ shines upon us, we in turn reflect that light back out into a dark and broken world, proclaiming that through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, the new creation has begun. Will you pray with me? God, we are a people walking in spiritual darkness. Yet you sent your son into this world you created to bring us light and life. God, you are light, and in you there is no darkness at all. Father, we confess to you that apart from you we are blind. We confess to you that we often claim that we can see just fine on our own. We cannot. Open our eyes today that we might see your face. Father, help us to receive your son that we may have the right to call ourselves your children. Father, we pray that you would deliver us from suffering. Yet if it is your will that we must endure sickness and hardship, we ask that you be present with us in our suffering. Father, help our suffering to produce endurance and our endurance to produce character and our character to produce hope. Father, whatever we go through, we ask that your works might be revealed in us and that all things would work together for your glory. God, use us to reflect the light of your son Jesus back out into this dark and broken world that you love so much. Amen.